Oh, hi, I'm Alan Gannett. And I'm Shane Snow. And you're listening to Creative Hotline, the call and vice show dedicated to helping creatives reach their full potential. Today, we're doing a grab bag episode, questions about everything and anything. Like, what do you do when you have too many ideas? What is the line between simultaneous invention and copying? And are deadlines helpful or hurtful? All that and more in this episode of Creative Hotline. Creative Hotline, leave your question at the... Hello, Alan and Shane. My name is Stephanie and I am currently in the Grand Park of Tirana in Tirana, Albania. That small, slightly unknown country just east of Italy, of the boot side of Italy. Well, the boot, the heel, the heel side of Italy. Anyway, I do have a question. And first of all, congratulations on the new podcast. I'm so excited that you all are doing this. Okay, so... The question is, um, ever since I started podcasting a few years ago, there's been this surge of creative ideas that I can't control. And I'm not trying to. I'm trying to do all of it. And that's kind of the problem, is that um, my work is all over the place. And I want to take this year to kind of organize it and more strategically kind of monetize, but also just have it displayed in a better way so people can find me easier and 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 do other things with me like when I send people stuff for like collabs and stuff it's just it's all a mess it's a mess and at first the surge was really fun um, but the creative surge is now kind of exhausting so I'm curious when you have many ideas at once what do you two personally do to store the information to convince yourself that you shouldn't do all of it all at once like what what in the world are the options for calming creatively down and getting stuff done that is presentable to the world. Thanks so much. Bye. I adore this question because I love the idea of creatively calming down because that is definitely <laughs> a feeling that sometimes I feel like I need because, I, I, you know, you get excited and you want to do all these things. And so I, I very much empathize with this. Also, I love that you're calling from Albania. That must, yes. I think that might be the record for the furthest call yet, but we're global now. Yeah. <laughs> but I've always had actually a framework for how I think about this stuff because I'm a very overly rational type of person to a fault a lot of times. But no. I, I have a I have a framework that's sort of a three three matrix thing. I don't know if that's the way to describe it, but this is for everything other than sort of you know charity type stuff. So this is for like work work things. But I wanted I have these three sort of questions I ask. One is does it make me happy? Two is does it help my career? And three, does it pay the bills? And I'm actually not looking for three out of three. What I'm looking for is two out of three. And if a project doesn't live up to those three, two of those three things, I tend to cut it or not even start it. And I use that as sort of a first level curation tool. So there, what you're talking about, there's something similar... I think it's supposedly a Japanese concept, but I think it actually is like a westernized, bastardized version of a Japanese concept called Ikigai. I don't know if you've heard of this, Alan. Uh, no, I haven't. So Ikigai is basically, it's like a, an unholy Venn diagram uh, with like four parts. Uh, and it's what are you passionate about? What are you uniquely good at? What... Can you make money from and what can you do that's good for the world? And, oh, I love uh, this. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, what does the world need? 
what can you get paid for? What do you love? What are you good at? Basically is, is the breakdown. And there are things that, you know, there's things that you love that you're good at that could be a passion, but you can never get paid for. Um, mm. And there's things that you love that the world needs that uh, that's a great mission, but also you can never get paid for. There's things that the world needs that you can get paid for that you don't love. And that might be a vocation you hate. So uh, you can kind of fill out this Venn diagram. Look up Ikigai, I-K-I-G-A-I. And that I've found is a useful tool for, for me for thinking through where do these things that I want to do, these ideas that I have, where do they fit? Is anything in the center of all of that? Because if so, then that's what I should focus on. And, uh, you know, if you get three mm. out of four, then that could be good. And if you're in a position where you don't need to get paid, God bless you, then, uh, then don't worry about that one. Do what the world needs and what you love and what you're good at. So I, I'd say that's an interesting filter that, uh, that Stephanie can use. The, the other thing is, it sounds like there's a couple questions in here. One is about focus and time management and energy management. And, uh, and the other is about kind of presenting yourself. You know, what do you, mm. when people ask, what do you do? Or someone makes an intro to you and you're giving your elevator pitch or whatever. What do you put forward when you have 20 things going on? Uh, and I, I can relate to this a lot. I tend to have a lot of things going on. And what I try to do, my personal filter for kind of narrowing down my focus is I want to always have some time for exploring other things. So I think that makes you more creative in general, but not too much time. I mean, 50% of your time shouldn't be just like exploring random things, but I want 10% of my time to be working on things that may not pan out, but will teach me something that other people in my field aren't learning. And then the rest, I try to make sure that they accrue to the larger whole. So, you know, if I'm working on a side project, it better teach me something that I can then use or it better add up to something that I can use in my main projects. And so, you know, a lot of times I think it's easy to get excited about ideas because they're creative, because they're unique, because they're fun. Mm. But then if they don't help you move the ball forward on the things that you care about the most, then, uh, then it's hard. But, uh, but those are the kinds of things that you ought to consider cutting. I am such a bad example of this, <laughs> but uh, there's a great book actually called Essentialism by Greg McEwen. Great book. That I think is very inspiring on this front. It's sort of an extreme version of cut out all the fluff in your life and focus on what really matters. But even if you don't cut out all the fluff, it I think can be something that if you read a few chapters of it or listen to the audiobook, can help motivate you to pare things down in a way that feels more empowering than uh, than like you're letting yourself or other people down. It's less subtle art of not giving a fuck and more do the right things for you and the right things for the people you care about. Essentialism is great. We used to give it to almost all of our employees, actually, back really? when I was running track maven. So yeah, I'm a big fan. But nice. my, my big takeaway, by the way, from this is that I like whenever there's uh, ancient Japanese wisdom that supports uh, my thought. Now I feel... I feel so correct. I feel I feel right. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, let's segue to a segment that we call the brief. I think that's a brief being typewritten by <laughs> old Underwood typewriter. It's Alan Gannett typing this brief. So the brief is just a quick segment where... I ask Alan about something that he does every week, which I think is awesome. So every week, Alan sends out this great email newsletter called The Creative Brief, which I super recommend. I read it every week. And in it, he always breaks down some new research study on college students or on mice that are addicted to steroids or some other fascinating thing. And he basically translates 
science so that we normals can understand what scientists are learning about us humans these days. And so I wanted to ask real quick, Alan, what's in the creative brief this week? What can you teach us? I don't want to read it. I just want to hear it. So this week in the brief, the title of it was The Right Person for Bouncing Ideas. And so what I looked at is, is a study that was done at, I can't, I do I pronounce it INSEAD or I-N-C-S-E-A-D? Anyway, the, the uh, Research Institute, INSEAD, I think it's pronounced INSEAD, which looked at what happens when people need to develop ideas at a company. And more importantly, when you were putting people together to get feedback, what were the most effective combinations or the most effective pairs? And what they found was really interesting. What they found was that close social connections were positively correlated to getting better feedback and resulting in more creative ideas and, and people who were in different domains or different fields. So the ideal person to get feedback from, if you want to increase the creativity of your ideas, is not your best friend who works right alongside you, but actually your best friend who works in a completely different field. And what they did is they hypothesized that this is because that those people can apply an outside perspective to something, but you trust them enough and they trust you enough to be able to give and receive constructive feedback. I love that. It, uh, there's a, a diagram that I, I kind of chart out in my book, Dream Teams, about this idea that the best collaborator you can have if you want to push yourself to be better is someone who fully supports you personally. You know that that you have their full personal support, but is has a very different perspective uh, and even a, a conflicting point of view on something. So instead of support for your ideas, they have support for you as a person and they're willing to really go uh, against your ideas so that you can push yourself to think differently. It sounds pretty similar to, to what's afoot here. Someone who you trust, who they're not going to sugarcoat things, but they're coming at it from a different perspective that uh, gets you out of the box, so to speak. I love Kim Scott, who wrote the book Radical Candor, and talks about this idea of being radically candid and how it's actually interesting because radical candor is all about being deeply empathetic, but very direct which I think also fits in with this, this idea of caring personally, but professionally or from a functionary perspective being very straightforward because oftentimes we can also default into what she calls ruinous empathy, whereas <laughs> that we care so much about a person that we don't give them direct feedback, which is actually worse. And so I really yeah. like that framework too as a way to think about you can be both empathetic and constructive and direct, and those things can actually fit really well together. I love that. Sounds yeah. like a good edition of the creative brief. <laughs> well, with that, um, we are going to go to the voicemail. What's up, Shane? What's up, Alan? This is Art from Europe. So the question might be a little bit tricky. So let's assume there is an idea that is popularized by one particular person. So let's take Jack Butcher, who's uh, constantly talking about making $1 on the internet. And everyone in the Twitter bubble would know that this idea is from Jack. Now let's assume someone else who has never heard of Twitter before and never heard of uh, the idea of Jack Butcher before comes up with the same idea and tries to popularize it on a different network. Let's assume LinkedIn. Is this plagiarism or is this still an original thought and can there be more than one instance of an original thought? would be curious what do you guys think 
So I grew up a few miles away from a town called Rigby, Idaho, where when you drive up to it, there's a big billboard that says home of the invention of the television. <laughs> and uh, in Idaho, we claim Philo T. Farnsworth invented the television. And we claim that. However, if you go to Europe, where art is from, uh, you will hear a different story. I think the television is an example of something that two people invented it in different parts of the world with no internet to connect them or to steal ideas from each other. They just arrived at a sort of different mechanism, but for inventing the same thing. And I, I'm pretty sure this has happened hundreds of times, if not millions of times throughout human history. Uh, this, you probably know more about, specifically about this idea of simultaneous invention than I do, Alan, but there's this concept that I love in uh, kind of the theory of innovation called the adjacent possible which Steven Johnson writes about in his book, uh, how, Where Good Ideas Come From. The adjacent possible is basically at any point, there are things that are possible because you know it's, we're one step away from being able to do them. And there are lots of things that are impossible because they're too many steps away. You know, we, can't, we don't have hoverboards and flying cars yet. However, we might, with the next thing that gets invented, we might be now adjacently possible to that. You know, anything new that happens means there are new possibilities that open up. And so when the television gets invented by two people at the same time, it can happen not just because someone copied or plagiarized the other person, but because the world has now developed to the point where that thing is adjacently possible. And, uh, you know, great minds can, can come to a similar conclusion because they're working from the same building blocks or technologies or tools or ideas that are out there. And so I don't see that as plagiarism at all. It would be plagiarism if you stole the blueprints. And didn't give credit, but uh, but coming up with a similar idea, I I can see if Philo T. Farnsworth would be pissed at the the Frenchman who invented the television also, but uh, it's not their fault. Like we're both arriving at this thing, so I don't think we should demonize people or hate people for inventing things uh, at the same time if it comes out of that that adjacent possible. Yeah, I think simultaneous invention is so fascinating. And one of my favorite examples of this is Charles Dar Darwin and Alfred Wallace. And you might be saying, well, who's Alfred Wallace? Well, that's, that's the point. And so mm. Charles Darwin and Alfred Wallace both discovered, essentially, or wrote about evolution around the same time. But what's interesting is they're both British. And Charles Darwin, obviously, we call it like you know, Darwinian theory. And he has a whole sort of setup in, I guess it's Westminster Abbey, like a whole sort of mausoleum thing dedicated to him. And, you know, eighth graders everywhere learn about him. And Alfred Wallace has like the tiniest little plaque in Westminster Abbey. <laughs> and so he doesn't get credit for discovering evolution. And what's interesting about this is that a lot of this comes down to social aspects. So there's a couple things happening at the time. One was that Alfred Wallace found and Darwin found out about each other because Alfred Wallace had sent his manuscript to Darwin asking for feedback. And Darwin was like, shit, oh, no. I've been working <laughs> on the same thing. And so he rushed to publish his first, which is not very nice. He rushed to publish his first. And then Wallace, you sort of looked at Darwin as a mentor and was saying, oh, okay, well, he started calling his own theory Darwinian theory because he sort of felt reverential to this mm -hmm. great, this great famous thinker. But the other thing which is interesting is that Wallace was actually very progressive for the time. He was a feminist, abolitionist, all these things. At the time, people looked at a bit askance 
And so he was actually not accepted in sort of, you know, quote unquote, wow. polite society in the same way that Darwin was. And so it was much more comfortable to give Darwin all the credit for this simultaneous discovery. And so you know, that to me is so interesting, this idea of who is history written by really affects our perception of how we give credit to people, which is really interesting. Wow. You know, it's it's a very relatable feeling, I think, if you're a writer or any kind of creator to uh, to see someone come out with something that is a similar idea as yours. Just this year, a couple of months ago, a very famous writer came out with a book that has a whole bunch of ideas that I've been writing about for years and who I know has been reading my writing. And, uh, you know, I didn't see any credit for that. And my initial instinct was to be fairly furious. Um, but my secondary, you know, once my thinking brain kind of turned on was, no, we're working from the same pool of ideas. Uh, it's completely probable that he could come up with the same kinds of conclusions that I've been doing. And, you know, even though I know he's read my stuff, maybe he hasn't read this stuff of mine. And it's, it's a much more charitable way to think about it. But that happens. And, and I do think there is this very interesting thing that who gets the credit often ends up being who gets the, you know, the prestige or the money or the influence. And, uh, and that is a problem in a lot of areas of society when it comes to creativity, when it comes to craft. We've talked before on the show briefly about, uh, you know, appropriation when, you know, a culture or a group creates something that then is appreciated, that then is monetized by someone else uh, or used by someone else without credit, and that person gets the credit, that feels extremely shitty and I think is morally not okay. But uh, but there's shades of that that happen all the time. And I think that how we deal with it as creative people, as humans with each other, we ought to try to take a charitable approach, You know, assume the best in people who are also trying to put good ideas out in the world, and I think people who are bad actors ought to, you know, we ought to shame on them. But I think people who don't mean it because they're just trying, they're excited about the same ideas we are. I think we ought to see them more as part of our team and, you know, build on their work next time rather than try to, to destroy them so that we're the only one. It is hard because <laughs> these, yeah. you know, ideas are close to, to our, closer to our identities than I think they ought to be. And then, you know, but that's natural. Yeah. And it's part of how, to your point, we, we give people cultural capital for their ideas. And so it's obvious, it's, it makes sense that people would become very sensitive and, you know, maybe almost overly possessive of them. But, you know, speaking of destroying things, it's time to destroy Shane's sense of, I don't know, grammarness, because oh, we no. have a segment called Gramando, which by the way, might be better pronounced Gramondo, but I'm not sure. But anyway, according to Urban Dictionary, it's slang for one who is particularly particular about the accuracy of grammar, punctuation, and syntax. And since we're both authors, we should, in theory, be good at grammar, right? Well, let's test that. So <laughs> I'm going to be asking Shane three very difficult grammar questions to see if he can be crowned the Gramando. Gramando, Gramando. Anyway, number one. Is the word half, when used as a noun, singular or plural? Hmm. I'm going to go with singular. I mean, it's half of a thing. So I'm going to go with it's a whatever half of a singular. No, it, it can't be plural. It's, uh, it's singular. <laughs> oh. 
Oh, really? Well, Already? This, this is kind of a trick question. So it depends <laughs> is the right answer. If the half is modifying a singular object, then it is singular, such as my oh. half of the couch. But if it modifies something plural, then it is plural, such as my half of the cookies. Reasonable. Oh, because half of the half of ten cookies is five cookies, which is plural. Oh no! And okay. half of the couches, there's just one half of the couch. All right. Mm, I know. So that it, it affects the the verb that you use. Uh, yes. Wow. Okay. I know. Always learning. Continuous education. <laughs> okay. Number two. Dun dun dun. Is the word Earth when referring to the planet that we live on capitalized? Yes. Planet Earth. So, all right. I watch uh, the show The Expanse, greatest sci-fi show on television. And uh, and when you think about Earth in the context of other places you could live in, say, the solar system, so Earth, Mars, the belt, the asteroid belt, Saturn, you would, uh, like, say you're on Mars, the ground beneath you, and we're talking English, right? Ground beneath you, you could call Earth like dirt, you know, and that would be a common noun. You wouldn't call it Earth. But uh, but there's a, w- a way that we use the word earth that means dirt um, or in Spanish, tierra. It, but if you're talking about earth, the planet, while holding a handful of Mars dirt, you need to specify that, I mean, the proper noun earth. So it would be capitalized. So, uh, yes. So I'm going to I'm giving it to you because I'm nice and you got it mostly right. You got it <laughs> okay. mostly right. It's actually quite difficult. So. There's three situations that are all different. So you're right. When you're picking up dirt, that's lowercase, nailed it. When you're speaking about Earth in context against other planets, it is capitalized. But if you're not contextualizing at other planets, it's actually lowercase. So if you said, for example, you know, we are, you know, everywhere on the Earth, people are looking for meaning. It actually wouldn't be capitalized. Isn't that interesting? Ah, interesting. So it's only a proper noun when it's juxtaposed with other planets. But if you're assuming it's just this planet, it's no longer a proper noun. It's just the the only planet we're dealing with. Correct. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Kind right. of fun. But I'll, but I'll count it. I mean, I got the cheers. So that's- yeah, you got two out of three. So I, you know, I'm giving it to you. I'm a nice guy. So question three. And if you get this right, you crown the Gramondo. I after E, except after blank. Well, the, the saying we're taught is except after C, but I, I know that the word way and neighbors and lots of others are E also. I don't know what the rule is, though. I know it's not just after C, but I don't know what the rule is. So I'm going to give you this. Because, yeah. You didn't fall for the trick. So I after E except after C is not an accurate jingle, even though we were taught that. The, mm-hmm. Someone put together on the internet the fully correct jingle, and it is really complicated. I, I want to read it. Do you mind if I read it? Yeah, yeah, please. Okay, here we go. See if you can memorize this. I before E except after C, or when sounded as A in neighbor away, unless the C is part of a sh sound as in glacier, or it appears in comparatives and superlatives like fancier, and also except when the vowels are sounded as an E as in C's, or I as in height, or also in ing inflections ending in E as in queuing, or in compound words as in 
albeit, or occasionally in technical words with strong etymological links to their parent language as in cuneiform, or other numerous and random exceptions such as science, forfeit, and weird. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we should have memorized that song. I feel bad for people learning English as a second language. I've been spending, I've spent the better part of the last year of my life in Latin America and uh, Spanish is so much easier to spell. (laughs) For sure. Hard to write in though. I I honestly, you know, I've been doing some writing in Spanish and it is, it is hard to write in your second language. I think shout out to anyone who listening to the show in English, if English is your second language and you manage to write anything, uh, kudos to you because it is, it is very hard to write in a second language. But Ain't that goddamn, I before E except after neighbor and way and albeit in science. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's, Very let's easy to understand. The, the, well, the voicemail. Well, Shane, you are the Gramondo, and we <laughs> are going to the voicemail. Hey, Alan and Shane. This is Eric from Modesto via LA, via New York. Uh, how are you guys doing? I had a quick question for you guys. So um, it's regarding deadlines. Um, how do you guys use deadlines, if at all, when. Um, working on creative projects as in even if you don't have a deadline do you find the use of artificial deadlines to be meaningful and forcing work you know my case is very you know since i moonlight as a creative you know my approach is very much um you know based on inspiration and sprints rather than marathons i mean that has worked for me but um as i want to get more serious in my approach i wonder if placing artificial deadlines on myself instead of letting projects linger will help expedite uh, my creative output. I'd uh, love to get your thoughts. Thanks, guys. So I am a huge deadline person. So I have <laughs> lots of thoughts about this. And I've actually thought about why I'm a deadline person. And it comes down yeah, to the I fact that I, I really don't like letting people down. Like, I really don't like it. And so as a result, deadlines are very powerful because I'm like, well, whoever I send it to, I can't, I can't let them down. I set a deadline. And so they're very motivating for me maybe in an unhealthy way, but definitely in a productive way. And so for me, I, a lot of creative projects have very big deadlines that are sort of far out. And so for me, I have to break that down to smaller deadlines. And so I need the, for there to be a social aspect to those deadlines. So how I'll do that, for example, is I might say, you know, I have feedback readers when I work on a book and I might say with a feedback reader, Hey, I'm going to send this to you next Friday. And they might be like, well, I actually don't care. And I'm like, no, 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 Like, I need to send you by next Friday because that deadline for me is incredibly motivating. So I'm pretty explicit with like agents and editors and feedback readers of I need deadlines and I'm going to set a deadline and I'm going to meet it. You know, you don't need to tell me that it's not useful to you because it's very useful to me. That's great. Well, I, I my take on this is that I think this is very much a function of personality, you know. And I think that's the answer to a lot of this stuff, to be honest. You know, different personalities are motivated, triggered, inspired, depressed by different things, right? And uh, I think that some people whose personalities revolve more around social, you know, wanting to please people socially or, you know, do right by people, they're like loyalty and and that sort of thing uh, will have different motivations around deadlines than people who are more internally driven, you know, I'm thinking of one of my uh, main collaborators in uh, in TV and film is he's motivated by a challenge. Like he doesn't give a shit about what you think of him, but if there's a challenge afoot, (laughs) that 
you know, he, he doesn't care if he comes off looking bad as long as he can defeat the challenge. Um, and that's, that's a function of personality and personality is more complicated than that. But for me with deadlines, I, deadlines can stress me out, but they can force me to do, for, for me, I often need a, something to force me to do work that I don't want to do. And that can be a deadline unless the deadline is too short, in which case I freak out. And this is where, you know, we, we had the episode on, uh, on drugs and and depression and creativity and, and kind of what we put into our bodies and our brains, you know, the other episode. And I think that in the past I have, well, and I'm aware of this, I still have this thing, but, uh, in the past I've used putting substances into my body as a way to get me to do work that I don't want to do. Like, Oh, I'm going to solve this by, you know, I'm going to meet this deadline because I'm going to reward myself with, uh, something that I, isn't legal to take. Uh, and I think that is a bad road to go down if your job is creativity. And so, uh, you know, there's a great book uh, that I think summarizes the psychology of this very well, The Power of Habit. You have a cue uh, that happens in your life and then you have a routine that you do when you get this cue and then you give yourself a reward or you get a reward from it. That's how habits form. So cue is I'm stressed out because I need to complete something. So my routine is I take drugs. The reward is I get it done. Or cue is I'm stressed out because uh, I, I have this deadline and the routine is I stay up all night and do the work. And the reward is I don't let my friends down or my, you know, the social aspect. Either way, there's kind of this loop that happens. And, uh, and the psychology basically says that if you get the same cue and you change the routine, but it gives you the same reward, then that's, that's the way to do it. So if the deadline uh, is the cue, then your routine uh, you know, that's the thing that, that better be a healthy thing so that you can meet the deadline and get the reward. However, if you're the kind of person that it's really hard to not have an unhealthy routine with the deadline, then I think making the deadline, not the cue is a, is a thing that works for me. So what I do, this is sort of a long and, and ranty answer to this. What I do is I tend to do, um, work sprints with people. I, I like the social aspect. There's something that I need to get done. Instead of setting a false deadline, I create basically a, a work date with, <laughs> there's various people that I do this with, um, but my wife and I do this all the time too. We work together where we use this app called Forest, which is a little app on your phone where you grow trees, like fake digital trees. You set a timer and you invite your friend or whoever it is. So we say, we're going to spend 60 minutes working uh, and, uh, and you plant this little tree. And if either of you do something on your phone, the tree dies. Oh no! And in your, yeah, and it's in your tree garden forever. This dead tree that you killed, and so there's this—you uh, have a block of time that you have to focus on working on what you're going to do. And if you get distracted or procrastinate, it kills the tree for your friend. Um, that That's is so a tragic. Of, yeah, it's a type of deadline, but it's gamifying the psychology for me. Of I need a reason to do this thing that I don't want to do, and the reason is I don't want to let this person down or kill um, a tree. Yeah. And the game is the routine rather than taking Adderall or something. And so, uh, yeah. So for me, that's the thing that, that tends to work as a replacement for that deadline thing. But I think the answer to Eric's question that I would give the short one would be figure out what is your psychology? What drives you? Uh, what can motivate you? And what's the reward you get from doing the work that you don't want to do? And is a deadline the thing that will motivate you to do it in a healthy way? Or is there some other way that you can motivate yourself to do it in a healthy way? like killing a tree. So, <laughs> 
Do you, yes, you listening right now have a question for us on anything creativity related that you'd like to hear on the show? Well, visit creativehotlineshow.com from your phone or computer to leave us a voicemail. We are here to answer your questions. So put us to work. And if you like this episode, we could really use your help. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps. Get more people, more callers, more questions, and uh, and maybe less Gramondo, but, uh, <laughs> but certainly more interesting questions on Creative Hotline. No, really, we know you've thought about leaving review. You've looked at those little grayed out stars and you thought, huh, maybe I should do that. Well, now is the time. So thank you and bye friends. Bye Shane. Bye Alan. Bye. 